1: We all have a story to tell, but what makes each one
0: different is not how the story ends, but
2: rather
1: the place where it begins. Can you Do you think me and that girl have a future? Well, why the heck not?
2: You know she's a Catholic. And you call me here
1: Yes! You know who you are. Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. So the whole family looks out for you. If you can't be good, be, be careful. careful. And that thought will keep you safe. We're looking to cleanse the community. You wouldn't want to be the old man out in this street. Touch my family and I'll kill you.
0: We're living in a civil war. This
1: is the time to make a new start.
0: Mama says if we went across the water, you wouldn't understand the well we talk
1: shouldn't be a problem. I've been married to your granny for 50 years. I've never understood a word you said. <laughs> Bloody religion, that's a the problem. Then why are you sending us to church? Because your granny kill me if it didn't. Well, not dead. Back here. How <laughs> <laughs> could I leave Belfast? Everybody likes them and everybody looks after
0: them. Belfast will still be here when you get back. Will you? I'm going nowhere. You won't find me.
1: You know who you are I'm wherever you go and whatever you become, i will always be the truth.
0: As we continue to look at this year's Oscar contenders, today we'll examine Belfast, the story of one family set in 1969 against the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It's a deeply personal film for respected writer, director, and producer Kenneth Branagh, who joins us for this episode. Also joining us is Belfast's film editor, Una Nignili, whose credits include Brana's upcoming Death on the Nile, as well as episodes of The Crown. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind Screen. So thank you both so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you very much. Well, let's start at the beginning. Ken, would you um, talk about the idea for your autobiographical story?
2: Well, I mean, it's, uh, as a friend of mine once put it, about a writing project, it's been burning a hole in my head and my heart for the last uh, 50 years. And um, uh, it's just been a question of whether across that time, a way of the story becoming more available to more people, stretching out beyond the narrow confines of uh, of my particular um, situation could be found. And I heard and was inspired by so many other stories across the years about other people who perhaps had moved countries or, or or been forced to make big changes in their lives due to the sudden arrival of uh, violence. And um, I decided that finally, with, with the introspection that... Uh, the the lockdown began to provide that this was a moment when uh, it it could come out, but with no particular pressure. So I didn't write the screenplay thinking that I was gonna make the film. I wrote the screenplay because I had to write the screenplay. And I knew that there would then come a very significant moment when I would share it with my brother and my sister and their reaction would be key. Um, And if they liked it, I might start thinking about making it. And if they didn't or didn't approve, then I wouldn't. Um, It was as simple as that. And they were very, um, they had very emotional reactions to the screenplay. My brother and I argued about who, in a pleasant way, about whose stories was who, because he thought I'd nicked some of his. And and, uh, he clearly had nicked some of mine. And um, (laughs) which... a good intro into the sort of style of the film because you began to be reminded of how fluid memory is, you know? And so we just, we we shared a bed for the first, you know, 12 years of my life. Uh, so I think our, our memories were completely interchangeable. Uh, but he was thrilled to, to go back there. I think it's been, and and he came back for our uh, Belfast premiere and um, and so did my sister. And she said, uh, you know, she said, to me, you're the most private, you know, and, and sort of guarded fella I know. And here you are, you've outed yourself. Um, <laughs> as, uh, um, it's, all, it's all out there. So she was very surprised, also very uh, emotional. But I, from the moment when, as it were, the floodgates broke, it came out with some rapidity. But as I say, after decades of thought and through the lens of, of understanding other people's stories a little and believing there was some some room for this one, and now it was time to go back and visit that that time uh, and those people uh, with a sense that there was a story here that 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 traveled further.
1: And who knew it was a personal story for your family as well? Uh, that's right. Um so I'm from Dublin, but my dad is from Northern Ireland. and um he, growing up, I always understood the complexities of Northern Ireland, and I was very much in tune with when I first read Kent's script about that. Those type of uh, relationships between the grandparents and the children, and that beautiful language, I think that Ken captured, which I think must be with your acting background. I-, I can remember one of the first things I asked Ken when I read a script was how did he capture the vernacular of the people so perfectly? Because it sounded like my grandparents or my dad and his brothers. So um, yes, yeah, so my family we would be nationalists. Catholic working class people I suppose my grandparents and my dad but they had great friendships with their Protestant neighbours and I think um, that's something that Ken's script celebrates and that celebration of community and family and the, the importance of home we also were touched obviously by the violence of the north and suffered uh, family members who had to leave and couldn't come back for a host of different reasons and I think that's what Ken's beautiful film Belfast is a celebration of just the the healing and the process that we can go through with hindsight you know looking back at this that there was such a great community of people there and I hope you know we're, they're still there we're also here hoping to um, survive and come through all of that hurt and loss of those decades of violence Ken, you brought together Una
0: Harris, your cinematographer, a lot of your regular collaborators. Would you talk about just, you know, bringing everybody together and telling about the project and what you wanted to convey?
2: Well, there's something uh, that is very um, beneficial to an ongoing creative conversation that stretches across various projects. It's also in my experience it's been a very uh, beneficial sometimes quite an exciting thing to sort of switch scale to move from uh, large-scale work to small-scale work if you're lucky enough to have such an opportunity and una and i were um were working on uh, the finishing of death on the nile and uh, it's really quite a big film and it's uh, there are many moving parts and uh, many characters and a different kind of style a different kind of music um but, you know, you, you exercise a lot of um, different kinds of muscles. And and we'd had this very valuable experience of prior to that doing another chamber piece, you might call it, In All Is True, uh, about the life of Shakespeare, a film made very swiftly on a low budget, but with a very sort of, um, what's the word, a kind of uh, concentration on, on the sort of laser specificity of performance, you know, and working with the great sort of crafts people and artists like Judy Dench, who sort of could, could paint such sort of beautiful colors in their performances with great subtlety, and you have to respond in the same manner. Death on the Nile has you expand. You're dealing with Egypt and murder and, uh, you know, 12, 14 different characters who might have done it and certain kind of tropes. To then go back to Belfast and to another kind of piece of chamber music, I think you have a very good way of understanding as understanding with your colleagues what strengths and weaknesses, well, not weaknesses, but what, what certain kinds of, um, what, what those things do to you. And you have a good sort of um, language, shared language about um, scale and about, about, about what you think matters in a frame or in a scene or in the pace of a scene. So it was a natural and positive and exciting step to return to people with whom one had had those very different examples of uh, scale and intensity and budget and time in the work and, uh, and feel sometimes the release uh, and freedom of going back into a project, which at least on the surface appears smaller.
0: And um, how did the two of you work? Um, Ken, do you like to spend a lot of time in the editing room?
2: Well, to be honest, uh, no, not so much um, because I suppose, um, well, A, I like to see what, you know, the editor does. And and I work mainly with the idea that, at least in theory, my colleagues may disagree, but you're, you're trying to empower people and you want, I'm not an editor. I don't wish to be an editor. You know, I have a strong... Sense of how a story might be told, um, you know, uh, for what that's worth. It's my own particular judgment at any given time, but uh, I've never, I've never thus far taken to the idea of physically working out how I'd like to, you know, put put a film together. But I'm I've always had very good relationships with people who bring a different dimension. So I want to see their creativity, um, and I don't, on the whole, have any problem with quite big ideas coming my way. I'm usually, I'm usually fairly clear when, um, you know, what I'm after is is baked in or not baked in. But um, I tend to like to come back, uh, you know, at, at, at in gaps that allow me to see the difference and give me a, a chance to walk away and have some perspective. This was different because we we edited remotely and I had a, an, a, an avid at my house. And one of the things that, was probably valuable was that uh, there was a ton of material, for instance, in the opening uh, montage of the city of Belfast in color, the modern city of Belfast, there was an enormous amount of footage, which I was able to go through uh, in the same macro detail, actually, that Una would have done anyway. But while I was doing that, uh, she also had time to maybe use different time on other areas of cutting. Same thing, uh, particularly helpful to me, was my ability to, you know, rather more hands-on editorialize the news footage and the reporting um, radio clips and everything that we sought out from the time. So there was quite a bit of sort of what I call sort of librarian research work that I was very happy to do in the sort of remote COVID-affected way of things. But effectively, I would still, as it were, invite una to take her space with it and either at the beginning or the end of the day or both and with lots of questions in between sometimes she would continue to sort of get on with taking taking the 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 lead on editing it and bringing it back to me for us to have a collaborative conversation about how it would how it would develop
1: i think actually it was wonderful that ken had the time, really, thanks to COVID, probably, Ken, that you could, because we had hundreds of hours of archive as well. So although I did go through all that footage first, when Ken went back over it himself, I went through it, say, in the early days of pulling it together, but we're... During the shoot as well, we're moving at quite a speed to make sure that I've everything assembled. So then Ken was able to go through and just pick out all the bits that he loved. And it was just really good because sometimes then he might find something that was like, oh, that's really beautiful, actually. And we could use that in the same thing with the archive. So it was a really good um, collaborative way I could cut to, say, late at night. And uh, because Ken had his avid there, I could literally just email the, the avid bin to the assistant who could pop it into his avid render everything and leave it open so Ken could come down he's an early riser so he could come down and you know, watch it at whatever 6am in the morning go through things so by the time I phoned him at 8am in the morning he had a good set of reactions and thoughts and we could speak for an hour on the phone make a plan of action I'd get tackling that Ken would go back to you know going through that archive or whatever else we needed doing and then um, it was just brilliant. It was a really good that I could send if Ken asked me to do something because we had work together and I knew that Ken had a, an interest in sort of so, stolen moments or, or an openness to finding some of the humanity in the performance. I think we're both on the same page with that That I could cut something and if I saw something that was maybe interesting I could just get on the phone, Ken could get onto his avid we could really discuss it. So although we were in two different countries we, we did work as best we could as if we were in the same room. Our the other thing I think, Ken, that I've been championing you about in any interview is that you've been, you have been—you were really brilliant that if I sent the sequence as we had discussed and say, as, as I'm cutting it, I could have seen something that maybe is that interesting and I could try that. Maybe another thing that's sort of interesting, just food for thought. I could send Ken, say, three versions, the one that he actually asked for and wanted, and then two others to say, hey, do you think, could this be interesting? And Ken was brilliant that he could watch them analyze them see maybe that is good from that bit and you know, we'd have a proper collaborative discussion whereas I'm sure another director could have just been tearing their hair and thinking I have to look at these three different little options you know and just I just wanted that one <laughs> so no thank you no thank you and maybe <laughs>
2: It's a fine line, isn't it, between... I, by the way, remind me, I did a lot of editing in pyjamas in this film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that That's what we one? had no
1: Evercast. There was only phone calls. We didn't have to see each other.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just uh, sitting there with my cup of tea and my dressing gown. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's a fine line between this, um, you know, the, the, the what you are, I suppose, hoping to retain is the, uh, uh, you know... The, 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 an, an evolving spirit of the storytelling, uh, where you know you want to embrace the fact that. It's a whole other drafting process, this, this, this editorial process, certainly with a film like this anyway, where you know, a lot of quite significant tonal changes were found. We had a lot more music in the film to begin with of different kinds. I remember saying in the first week we sat down, we, we managed to sit in one room right at the beginning of shooting. And I said to Una, I think the film could be as it is now with lots of 60 songs she has, or it might end up with a, with a soundtrack that is entirely Van Morrison. And um, and so it ended up that way. But for quite some time, you know, we had people singing and lip syncing to 60s numbers that uh, at one stage led to a slightly more sort of dreamlike approach, if you might say, in, in the way the story was told, a little inspired by, say, the world of, um, of Dennis Potter and Pennies from Heaven, that kind of um, um, that kind of. Work, slightly more surreal than the finished film turns out to be and um you know this was definitely a sort of creative drafting process in in the editing which was very vital and you have to somehow believe that in dropping this quite significant element of the original that you're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater or losing your way but but trying to um you know, as the sculptors say, you know, you're trying to find in that block of stone, the statue that is already there. And so the film, to some extent, was already there. And, and even though those quite significant sort of mechanical changes of approach went on, I guess, that the, nevertheless, the spirit of the film or the kinds of things that people said about the screenplay when they first read it, I'm pleased to say, still chime in with the things they say when they see the finished film um uh, if they like it um and i was actually very heartened the other day somebody sent me an email which was my email when i was out on the stump trying to raise the money for this uh, 18 months ago and i the opening and they said look i'm sending this to you because uh, just so you can confirm that what you pitched us is what you gave us wow
0: <laughs> that's good
2: we'd, we'd just seen the finished film it was the producer to whom we'd offered the chance to finance it and I was pleased to get her an email saying, we wish we had. Uh, <laughs> but, and I said, well, you can next time. Don't have any doubts. They said, and so I was also pleased to see that even though, as I mentioned, we produced quite a number of changes, that, that my pitch was about saying, look, this is what, you know, what happens to a family in a time of great crisis, tension, and violence. But nevertheless, part of what they cope with in, in this challenging time uh, is dealt with through humor and um, and music and and dancing and, and every opportunity to embrace that which they can that will bring light into their lives. So to in, to that extent, although you may be looking at a script that is a film about the troubles, uh, there will be a large sense in which I believe this film will be a feel good film. Yeah. Something that frankly a lot of people didn't believe me on back then. Uh, <laughs> Or it would be that to say such a thing was to be glib about this thing that I, as much as anyone, knew to be one of the great sort of modern tragedies, the Troubles in Northern Ireland. But we weren't talking about the whole of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. We were talking about the experience of one family butting up against it and what you do. So the, the, the spirit of it, I think, remained the same. But the actual editorial process took significant, legitimate risks um, in the shaping of it to retain the central character even though the manifestation was often quite changed.
1: And, you know, what was great when Ken actually did say, um, let's remove all of the music and let's go for Van Morrison. And that was something that you, know, you felt very strongly and it was a really good instinct, I think, because then it actually allowed something else to happen, I think, in the film, which was to, I didn't have to worry about the music because we knew what our music was going to be. So we didn't have to go through any sort of, I think Ken said to me very early on, don't put any temp track on, this is the the, the music of the film. And that meant that we could actually really explore the sound design and find the sort of uh, musicality either in the cutting shape or in the sound work to complement van Morrison and then his instrumental bits and i think that's sort of interesting that i i I feel there's a musicality to the way we cut this intrinsic to the image and the way we've shaped sound and then van is like another layer on top of that which is just speaks obviously and resonates with with ken and the, the poetry of van Morrison just adds to the experience of the film i think
0: well, I wanted to talk about a few of the scenes. Maybe we start with the Irish wake and, you know, the perfect placement of that scene.
2: Well, um, uh, Una knows as much or more about Irish wakes uh, than <laughs> I would say. We all used to think in the north that they really went for it down south. But my, <laughs> my father, in, in the top shot that, that um, begins the sequence where we discover the loss of this loved one, we see an open casket, uh, quite simple, Casket's too grand a word for it, but open coffin, simple wooden coffin. And at the side, there's a, a, that sort of um, ad hoc couch. And uh, it was just a, an expression of the the truth, which was that my father slept in the same room as his father in the open casket for five days and nights. So uh, he slept for five nights rather, while the community came and sort of paid tribute and had a drink and you know talked about stories about uh, pop. And, um, you know, it was, I remember my father always used to talk about that as being a very, very, very difficult experience, you know, to be, in, you know, intensely aware of this loss through the physical proximity in a tiny house after this bizarre day of usual drunkenness from often a lot of repeat visitors who were after, a, you know, another free drink or may have felt that Pop owned them a few drinks because he did owe a few Bob here and there. Um, and that when that, uh, when eventually he was buried, you know, the release was tremendous. And so we wanted in the film to, uh, in, in terms of the the way the story had progressed, to give a real anthemic catharsis at the end, uh, have people, as it were, jump up on their feet and sing and feel the music and tap their toes and just feel that sort of sense of wanting to embrace life that. The Irish particularly do, but maybe most people who have ritualized ways of dealing with loss need to do It's part of the human condition. You have to acknowledge it and feel it and sometimes feel it very painfully and deeply, but then somehow assert life after it. Um, And so the wake in the movie here does so through uh, a song by the love affair called Everlasting Love, which is... Uh, lip-synced to by Jamie Dornan but uh, then sung alongside to by Jamie Dornan who's now made it part of his traveling. (laughs)
1: There's
2: no no public event or even private dinner you can ask Jamie Dornan uh, where he will not jump into (laughs) which he does very brilliantly And, and it lets all the characters talk in a different way experience that beat that profound loss but that necessity to find a way forward through the simple but powerful mediums of popular music and dance and celebration and uh, family wildness. And um, after a film a film like this, um, often in minor key naturalistic conversations, the sort of explosion of energy was sort of uh, critical. And uh, it's turned out to be a, a sequence that I think people um, enjoy and identify with very much.
1: Yeah. And it was um, when we were cutting it as well, it was really important having this release after... Pops has died and knowing that they're going to leave Belfast. So two great moments of loss and sadness. It was really important to give that emotional release but also to have the subtext of Ma um, and Pa are going to be okay and the way I think that, that Ken and Harris filmed it and the way that Jamie and Katrina performed it, you can just feel the look that Katrina gives Jamie is just perfect as they're singing to each other and you just realise after watching you know, an hour and a half of the the stress and the strain and the tension and the taxman to see these two people you know they love each other and they're going to be okay and then we obviously end near the end of the scene we reveal little buddy with that beautiful face of jude hill just enjoying the love of his parents coming together and you sort of know that the family is going to be okay but it's sort of cut from the subjective point of view of buddy but you don't reveal that until really the very end from that tutorial point of view
0: The whole cast was terrific. Ken, who was the most difficult character to cast?
2: Ah, well, I suppose inevitably, Buddy, because it felt as though if we couldn't cast that character well, we really couldn't make the film. Actually, because it would just it would fall apart. Um, so it was with some trepidation that we were in parallel prepping the movie uh, whilst hoping that we would find the boy uh, three hundred self-tapes later we we through a series of stages um lucy bevan and emily brockman our, our casting directors uh with, with carla strong's help in, in in belfast found jude hill and also lewis mccaskey Blaze's brother will and it was after some zoom meetings and then in um person in belfast with some improvising that i met with him and just uh you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't a lightning bolt moment, but what I did realize was that here's, here's somebody who can really listen. It was so critical when we were doing the improvising that was part of his sort of final audition, not just a sort of chemistry test with him and Lewis to see if they could feel like brothers, but also the capacity to film him listening and not feel that he was just waiting to say his next line, to feel as though in an improvised scene, words could change and he would change accordingly, that he could be present and in that moment. And also in that moment, forget that there's a big machine pointing at him. Uh, when we actually started shooting, the first couple of days were a bit nerve-wracking because he did keep looking at the camera. Not not all the time, but he would sneak a little glance because he, he was tickle pink. He's a very smart lad and he was very intrigued by this process. He hadn't done it before and often... The, camera was in a weird place and people were moving around it. It does catch your eye and it takes a while to sort of ignore it. Uh, he's a very curious, uh, full of curiosity as a, as a, as a young man. Um, but once everybody else started to arrive, his first day or two was a lot of stuff just with him. Once other people started to arrive, you could see him latch on like a magnet to the interplay with him and the other actors. and um, And then he he found a way to sort of enjoy it and stay present and not and not acquire stress sometimes you know they get young actors can feel the pressure you know we managed to keep that away from him but he's got a great family and um, it was a great family cast family as well you know they were very supportive and. Judy Dench made a beeline for him in terms of trying to find a way to establish their own sort of on-stage rapport, on-screen rapport. Although she always is genuinely interested in people, so it's not just a kind of "let me find a way to use this boy." Um, they, they developed a very interesting friendship, and and, uh, and and as as Jude did with all of them, he he was key. And whilst difficult to cast in the sense that it was intimidating to know that we couldn't really make the film without. The perfect casting. It was also lovely, lovely, lovely to watch this kid blossom. And to see him actually across this weird period of promoting the film, he stayed, that head is still on those shoulders. He's still present. He's still finding it fun. He hasn't suddenly become madly precocious. We're all very proud of him for, um, you know, keeping feet on the ground without not enjoying the bejesus out of it as well, because it's a very exciting moment that he's having and we're having. So no one... Is, is sort of casual about that, but the authenticity with which he portrays the part and the family surrounding him, I think I can see as we go around the place, talking about the film now was real because it stayed real. And in fact, um, I took Jude to, to the football the other week, as you may know, he's I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan and that's clear in the film. Um, <laughs> and Jude is a Liverpool fan. And I, t- I brought him over to uh, with his dad and he came to watch Liverpool play Tottenham at Tottenham, and it was his first proper football Good
1: match in <laughs> it,
2: uh, it was wonderful yeah. to see. It was just great to see how he. This is not somebody who'd become blase because now he's a big star of a movie. Um, he was just loving the heck out of a, a day at the football, and uh, was um, it was a, it was a joy to be joy to be with him and his dad. So, the reality of the connections that were made between that family feel as though they've. They were real, and they have lasted, and they will last.
1: Ken, who won?
2: Uh, it was a two-two draw, which really was the right result. <laughs>
1: okay, okay. <laughs> he, would
2: been, he would have been a very, very, very unhappy young man, I can tell you. He's a, <laughs> he's a big football fan. He kicks every ball, as it were. We played a big football match between the crew, and we had to—you know—he took it very seriously. We had to take him very seriously, no patronising the little fellow. He was. Uh, you know, tough customer and took it very seriously. It was fun and he's a good footballer.
1: And Joe, I think you did very well as well. When in the first week of shooting, Kent did a lot of those shots where, you know, he's walking with his dad through the beautiful wheat fields or going through the little fence to school and back from school. So they were sort of good scenes for a, a young child who's starting to act to get used to the the act of acting without having to, you know, do the big dialogue scenes yet. And then I can remember when I saw um that little thing of the fence going through the fence each time. We kept we had a few more of them in, but we ended up just keeping two of them. But then at the end of the film we used, you know, that space because one of the things that Ken's film struck me about is um and the way he he the way you shot Jude, the way the clothes that Jude is wearing and the little satchel that's sort of ill-fitting on the back of his shoulders as he's walking to is You know the Francis Ludwig poem, uh, A Little Boy in the Morning? He shall not come and still I wait. He whistles at another gate where angels listen. And that's... So near the end of the film, we use those the tail end of one of those shots of the fence and then some beautiful shots that Ken had of you know where Pops once was with his saddle and with the curtain and put very delicate sound on so that also I think captured after the joy of the um the wake then the the beauty of just looking at this the places where the family will no longer thread because they're leaving Belfast and who knows when they'll be back and there's sort of a a poignancy and a beauty to that as well That was all from your first week shoot, I I remember vividly just loving the way you had him going through that little fence each time.
2: I also remember that this thing you were saying earlier about sound, um, it was quite a strong discipline to not use any temp music, you know, and and for me it was very helpful because not only did it ultimately reveal the creative choice to stick with the great and the legendary Van Morrison, uh, not only for his existing songs for the new song that he provides and for the what I'd call the sort of mood music that that, that uh, punctuates the film uh, but it allowed in not in not bringing um, you know any kind of existing pre-recorded music even our fans actually to to bear I felt as though we kept we kept hearing the film freshly and we also kept hearing the opportunities for sound and one of the things that I've been very pleased to hear is that um, you know, beginning with una and 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 through the the work on the sound of our great um, sound team from Denise, the record is through uh, Niv and James and Simon. Um, the um, the soundscape, I think, is something that people notice in a positive way, not in a way that yes. is sort of intrusive. I think you know the and, and we were able to hear and listen for it look for it and then find it where, whether it's the sound of an ice cream van in a, in a street away whether it's the sound of constant sound of boats leaving that great big industrial city and leaving the island of ireland like the titanic did you know all those yeah. years ago and um i just felt as though we took care and had time to let the parts of the film that were going to surprise us, even though they ask things of us um, by way of further directing them, uh, we allowed time for, for that which was gonna surprise us in the film to reveal itself. And I feel as though the COVID side of our lives possibly let that happen in ways that were, were, were different. But I think that the single thing that we made ourselves do in a way was to stop and listen. Um, uh, sort of creatively and literally, and uh, sometimes in the editing process in movies, you can find yourself rushing to get to a sort of a stage a little bit further along than might be right for where the rest of the work is. And then you have the dangers of falling in love with temp soundtracks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that then have to be sort of um, You know, half half reimagined. So I was proud that we hung on, and that, so I think, because I think a a story of the city and a story of the characters is told very strongly through a very sort of bespoke soundscape that had many contributions.
1: I think also the fact that uh, Ken shot, uh, owing to COVID, in Surrey, it meant that even before principal photography, uh, Ken and I spoke and I, I was asking him, what were the sort of subjective memories you had as a child? And he sent me an email with, you know, exactly that, the Rack and Bone Man, the Ice Cream Man, the Constant Trains, the Ship Horns. So we were pulling those already, myself and the assistants, before we even began filming. So that, that first week of shooting, you know, we could begin to do a temporary soundscape until the sound team started proper to just flesh out. So on that first Friday of the first week of shoot, Ken wrapped at about seven. I think you were in Twickenham by about eight. And we stayed until close to midnight just watching the first week's work. And already it had you know, that sort of beautiful sound for the bird or the train or whatever. We were, we were fleshing that out. So that also, I think, gave, as Ken says, a freshness to the thing. There's also
2: moments like, there's a, a scene between father and older son where they have to discuss the fact that he's delivering milk bottles, which we now discover are, you know, the... The, the makings of petrol bombs, and um, you know, in another life, it'd be easy to put a certain kind of music in there. One thing we just decided eventually was just that it would be it would be church bells, um, and it was a really interesting process to see, of course, how many gazillions we we, we went at it. We went at it uh, on, on a very specific level. Right, North Belfast, where's the nearest church to this street? You know, so we did that, and we. And we found that out. We got those bells up and we listened. We thought, well, yes, fair enough. It's real, but are they right? And then, um, you know, it was just interesting to run through the gamut of church bells, which in themselves, of course, are not crafted um, pieces of musical score. And yes, we had control over the, the way and the length and the sound and the volume at which they peeled. Uh, mm-hmm. But to see that... Um, both as a sound of the street that carries from far away, as a symbol of religion which dominates that world, and as a musical element which is not as crafted or as intrusive perhaps, work its magic in underlining what was going on in that scene. That was very enjoyable to see that little bit of creation uh, reveal itself.
0: I also wanted to talk about the riot at the beginning. Would you tell us about Shooting and editing that scene, and can uh, were there movies that inspired some of the ideas for that scene?
2: Well, the uh, the, the, the the scene uh, as as executed was inspired by um, the experience of being there and feeling that this hot summer day went into a kind of slow motion surreality uh, as I tried to. Um, process in what was to all intents and purposes another beautiful day in the neighbourhood now being affected by this curious, unknowable, unfamiliar sound uh, which I very much felt must be bumblebees we lived right next door to a park and yet of course I'd never heard more than one or two bees at a time so there was something uh, perplexing about these 20 seconds where instead of walking in for my tea, I realized that something very different was happening and peripheral vision telling me that other families and other kids were reacting quicker and differently and more urgently. And then suddenly making this sound of the bees connect with what was now a vision of a sort of cloud at the bottom of the street, some distance away, which again, I thought must, is that a swarm of bees? Was something so uh, sort of, um, what well, felt very slow and rather stupid at trying to understand what it was. But anyway, as my brother emerged from this crowd running down the street saying, get in the house, get in the house, get in the house, it became clear it was a riot. And from that moment on, I didn't really know what was going on. So I wanted the two things in the film, the slow burn of um, conversion from a beautiful summer's day in a relatively harmonious working class street where the, the sort of bush telegraph of a mother standing on a step yelling a boy's name will get that information to him three streets away, uh, all of that equilibrium completely um, ripped apart by the invasion of the mob. Um, and so I knew there would be this slow burn, hence the circular track which Harris and came up with. And then once the first petrol bomb had been set off, that we should... A film the whole action. everybody on the set was in, the sh- was in that shot. Um, it was 360 degrees so all the people who were playing the residents and all the people who are playing the rioters, uh, action was happening, stones were being thrown, um, you know the, the, the physical movement of the rioters was happening. Um, so we knew it would be a very alive and dangerous thing. and once the first petrol bomb went off, our goal was to capture as much material as possible to make it as jagged and abstract potentially in the cutting uh, as we could. But it was, uh, we, we sort of put a lot of eggs in the basket of one complete all-in-one shot and then offered a lot of material to Una to see if she could make this jagged, you know, caught in a washing machine, spin dryer of horrible, uh, chaotic, furious activity um, make the audience viscerally connect with what's happening to this kid as he's picked up by a mother who now uses that plaything, silly, you know, trash can lid that was a as a pretend shield for him a minute ago, and now Jesus, a, a real shield. As these, as uh, you know, in those cases, and it happened on the same day, three streets away, the first child died in the same, you know, hail store, and another nine-year-old boy happened to be a Catholic boy on that same day, um, because it was so, uh, it was entirely arbitrary, life and death in that kind of situation could happen with one wrong blow, one whatever. So as an editorial challenge, it was really quite a lot of material to dump in, uh, at Una's door, but also, you know, she's a great, you know, artist with this Kind of material. I know editing isn't just about doing things quickly and sharp cuts and energy, but it's important that that skill's available as well as the skill to understand how how and when to hold a shot and support a shot that maybe as many in our movie are static and 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 held.
1: You know, it was just such a gift to be given a scene like that. I think um, I think Ken was very brave. I don't know if I said that to you yet, Ken, but I, I think you're very brave. To when I read his script. And I saw what the first riot was, because obviously in our family background, we would have been the Catholic working class people on those streets, and um, 13 years before 1969, my dad at age 16, he's only a couple of years older than Will probably, had been a political prisoner, he'd been jailed at the time, there was a lot of internment and imprisonment of teenage dashes. So I, I sort of was aware when I was reading this. I just thought, wow, Ken is really brave coming from a, a Protestant background to actually showcase what was happening on the streets and to have sort of the authenticity to show what actually happened on the fifteenth of August, nineteen sixty nine. So I actually thought I thought it was uh, very brave. I think it's very. Brilliant that it, you've kept the name Belfast. That was my other thing that I—I I was really hoping that there would never be a change of name because I think you've taken that name of that beautiful city and sort of reclaimed it again for itself. So I, I yeah. So when I was cutting it, I was thinking of all of those things. I was thinking of all those. Um, the the child, Ken standing in the middle of the street with this thing coming towards them. So if it is the sort of Stanislavski style of editing, because I read his script, I, I could see the words on the page, to, to feel it and have that visceral nature of those people coming, warrior mother saving the child. And then I really like the fact that actually can step the child onto the table, his younger self, but actually stayed with Ma, which I think, again, is really lovely change of point of view, that actually there were moments in this film it is wholly... Your buddy's point of view, but there are moments where you gift the point of view to another member of the family. And on this occasion, you know, we come with Ma. She crawls across that, that uh, dining room, living room area, and looks out the window and witnesses what the carnage outside. And then the fate black with oh, holy God, that was in the script, and that was just beautiful. So it it was a real it was a real pleasure to just embrace all that beautiful footage and just find a way of of weaving it together so that the audience could feel the fear and be like that little child on that street experiencing what he experienced.
0: So Ken, in this uh, this COVID era, as people are watching this film, what do you hope people take away?
2: I suppose um, the idea of uh, the necessity for tolerance, I suppose, um, all of this happened because you know in in polarizing and becoming um, tribal uh hearing hearing cries that encourage people to do that you know in one day uh, young Paddy could live next to a young buddy and be friends and have no issues they're both economically in the same position with their families They've got the same size of houses they go to the same schools you know or they you know and they you know, tolerate, respect, find amusing, their different religions, but essentially they live uh, harmoniously. And then a couple of hours later, because different labels have been applied, that, that no longer is the case. Um, and it seems uh, ultimately uh, fruitless and, and in the case of Northern Ireland, tragic, that that was the case. We see in the world right now um, that that kind of polarizing impact is, is, is very prevalent um, and it's very easy for people to, you know, to encourage emotive responses to difficult situations where uh, understanding a contrary point of view, a conflicting point of view, uh, is hard to do. It requires effort, you know, and um, and we don't always want to apply that. And sometimes it's easier to stick with our tribe and and uh, and feel defensive instead of trying to understand what may be. Differences that you could respect, um, possibly celebrate, or even just uh, respectfully disagree with, but live alongside without um, without turning into violence. We've got enough to worry about and deal with it in our lives. There are so many other issues in our world without turning against ourselves in that way. So, I mean, I hope that people are entertained by the film and moved by the film, but I hope if there's a, something to carry away, it's the sense that, uh, Tolerance good, intolerance bad, you know, bigotry bad, right. you know, harmony good. <laughs> it's a, it's a, maybe a simplistic message, but it's one that uh, uh, I feel um, we partly tell this story from a nine-year-old's point of view because I wanted the message to be as simple as that.
1: <laughs> and you, know, which, I think you've done as well, which I think is really important. For me, it's, it was vital when I read the script that I just knew I would... You yeah, was so happy that Ken asked me to edit with him. It is just that fact, as you said, that the humanity of the people, it was there. Sometimes the media themselves, they polarised the discussion of the Troubles. And actually, there was great friendships between Protestants, Catholics and Hindu, and there's many other religions of the North. And that celebration of the humanity of all of us, because we're only here a short time on this earth, so you treat each other well and I think the film sort of celebrates that that people did do that and looked out for one another and looked out for their neighbours and that even did continue during the Troubles but it's a lesser told story so I'm really happy that Ken actually has told the story of this community and this family at that time in their lives and that little boy Thank
0: you both so much for joining us Thank you Thank
1: you so much Carolyn Be good son if you can't be good and if you can't be good, be careful. <laughs>